Here we go. You are listening to Open Mic Friday, Law and Gospel, on this June the 12th in the year of our Lord, 2020. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and because we're not yet back in the studios, we're doing Open Mic Friday through emails that we have received or phone calls. Uh, The first item we're going to look at is an email from a man named Tom. Dear Pastor Baker, I've been following your program for several years now. I've enjoyed reading the Heidelberg Disputation and your past program with Todd Wilkin, the Book of Concord, and Law and Gospel by C.F. Walther. I'm still trying to get my head around the difference between the law and love. Do they have the same purpose or are just different ways of expressing God's description for our Christian life? If Christ is not the new lawgiver in the way of Moses, why does he say a new commandment I give you to love one another? All right, let's start off with that. Jesus, of course, says that when he's instituting the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday. So what does that mean, that this is a new commandment? Was it not necessary in the Old Testament also to love one another? Well, if you take a look at the Old Testament, the lawgiver was Moses. And did you see the laws that Moses gave? A lot of them were what we call ceremonial laws that you had to follow in order to show that you were truly part of the family of God. Circumcision, for example, was one. And the various sacrifices that one made when sin occurred. What God now is demanding is only love. And that love is the word agape. There's a number of words in the Greek for the word love. There's eros, erotic love. Philea, Philadelphia-type brotherly love. And agape which is the love that God uses in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It's a unselfish love that one does without any hope of recompense, without any hope of meriting heaven. So the old law under Moses, remember in Exodus The people said, all these things we will do and obey. Of course, then they made the golden calf. So that failed. And the book of Hebrews is very good at showing the lack of salvation through following the ceremonial laws, even the civil laws of Moses' day. And, of course, the Ten Commandments. The writer goes on, is love simply a positive way of saying a negative, as used in the commandments? For example, Jesus said, 
All of the commandments are summed up in the verse. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Can love now accomplish what the law was not able to, living a godly life now and in eternity? Well, let's answer that question. To that, I would go to Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. God commends the sheep for loving acts done toward the neighbor. Remember visiting them in prison, clothing them, giving them food, etc. But the sheep can hardly remember doing all that. It's not that the goats did not do those things, but the difference is the sheep were motivated by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they did this out of love for Jesus Christ. That's the new commandment, that we do the commandments, the will of God, according to love for Jesus Christ. And that love, of course, is found in the Holy Supper. Is the command that we are to love one another a new way of looking at the same laws. What is the difference? Well, the difference is that the Christian, when true love occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit, is a love that is not only initiated by God, but has no ulterior motive. Listen to a lot of sermons these days, and you'll get the impression, particularly from evangelical preachers, that the way to get to heaven is to do more good works, to show God how much you love him. Well, that's not true, because it's not your love that gets you to heaven. Love is a part of the life of sanctification, and the difference is the following. Justification is when God declares you to be his child, forgiven of all your sins, dressed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Sanctification is instead the response to having that gift. Therefore, when we talk about love and commandments, I remember a professor once saying that all the commandments of God are simply the will of God for us to follow. But the commandments include also the motivation. Therefore, the Matthew 25 shows very clearly that motivation is everything. If one does not have faith in Jesus Christ, then it is impossible to be a loving, to do a loving good work from God's point of view. So the new commandment is based on faith in Jesus Christ, who died so that we will never die, and who lives so that we live eternally. It's really quite a difference.
the letter ends, like all Christians, I have times when faith, word, and spirit lead me into correct thoughts, words, and deeds. But I also fail daily at loving God and my neighbor. That is actually the definition of a Christian. It's found in the Latin phrase used by the Reformers, simul justus et peccator. At the very same time that you are righteous, you are also a sinner. That's best explained by Paul in Romans 7. The things he does not want to do, he keeps doing. And the things that he wishes he could do, he's unable to do. Who will deliver me from this death? And he pronounces the good news that Jesus Christ delivers us. So the love found in the Monday Thursday statement by Jesus, the new commandment to love one another, is now what God looks for on the day of judgment. The Bible even says he'll take a look and decide whether you go to heaven on the basis of your works. At first reading, that seems to be a contradiction until you recognize that the works he is speaking about are the works of the Holy Spirit within you, which cannot happen unless you are a believing Christian. I hope that helps to answer that particular question. Now let's go on to another letter. Hello, Pastor. I have eagerly scrolled through emails this past week looking for proper biblical insights from my spiritual brothers and friends. Thank you for taking time to address my neophyte musing about navigating moments in time as a Christian in culture over the years. This morning I penned these questions and hope you will have time to address them because my heart is so heavy with righteous indignation about current events. Now that righteous indignation he doesn't explain, but I'm sure it could include the pandemic that is sweeping over the world, and it also could include the protests, protests that could be necessary in order that police use proper procedures in arresting people and also protests, <coughs> excuse me, I sneezed, and also protests that are improper in breaking into stores and doing violence. Therefore, Pastor, please help me glean insight and a proper application from these few questions. His first question is, what is religionless Christianity? Well, when I read that, I got two opinions in my mind. 
I personally consider Christianity to be religionless. What does that mean? Religion often describes some kind of supernatural belief where works are really important in order to be saved. Christianity is not that kind of religion. And therefore, religionless Christianity would be a Christianity, uh, from my point of view, where you are saved by grace through faith, not by merit through works. However, there could be another definition of religion, religionless Christianity. That is a Christianity that could be practiced by many people that regard Jesus Christ as a wonderful person, a great lover of individuals, but has no indication that Jesus is Savior of the world or that he is a divine being. In fact, Jesus in that kind of religionless Christianity is seen more as an example, an example of what we are to follow in order that God might save us. This leads to the second question. Is the proper application of the two kingdoms theory diametrically opposed to religionless Christianity? Uh, again, depending on what you mean by religionless Christianity, let's first talk about the proper application of the two kingdoms theory. We believe that God has instituted two kingdoms here on earth. And we're not talking about the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of the church. We're talking properly about the kingdom of the temporal world in contrast to the kingdom of the church. In other words, the temporal world has an abundance of rules and laws because the purpose of the laws there is to quell, to subside riots and insurrection, to bring peace in a temporal sense. You can have peace in a temporal sense without any Christianity being involved. This is why we don't have a problem, for example, of the President of the United States if he were a Muslim or an atheist or Jewish, even though he wouldn't be a Christian. Those kinds of thinking still could result in laws against murder, laws against stealing, and so forth. Because there is a natural law that is found in the hearts of all human beings. 
And in following that natural law, peace can be found in a particular environment. So, God doesn't give to spiritual commanders, that is, pastors and Christians, the right to insist that what the Bible says needs to be followed by the government. I'll give you an example. We believe, teach, and confess that in unbiblical divorce can lead to excommunication from the church. However, the government permits unbiblical divorces. They will consider them as having no spiritual recognition, and a person can have a divorce even though the church would frown on that divorce. And there are many other rules and laws that the church has that are not followed by the government because these are rules and laws for the individual Christian. We don't think they contradict what the Bible has to say about what the temporal government does. And we attempt to get the temporal government to follow, especially morality, from the Bible. Because both in the temporal realm and in the spiritual realm, items like abortion or gay marriage are an abomination before Almighty God. The next comment, I have been wondering... Will institutional orthodox religion, as we once practiced and knew it, ever be the same? Because of the coronavirus, will there ever be the practice of the common cup and large congregant fellowship? Well, let me answer the second one first. The reason that people are wearing masks today the reason that we're keeping a social distance from one another is because the scientists have not yet discovered an antidote or an antivirus against this particular coronavirus. When that occurs, I do believe that we'll once more be back into large congregant fellowships. In fact, at my home congregation, St. Paul of the Pair, 2,000 members, they started off with having 10 people sign up to come to church to receive the Lord's Supper. Now I believe there's a number of 100 people that come to four different services. You also sign up for that. And they separate the people. The people are wearing masks during the service. If we had no antidote for the flu, we would not be having large worship services because of so many who die from the flu. But you can now get a shot 
for the flu. And I believe once they have something that can take care of the coronavirus, then we will be returning to large congregants of people who have therefore been receiving medicine not to get the coronavirus. As to whether institutional orthodox religion will ever be the same, I've got a very interesting view on that. I don't think it's changed. Orthodox religion is Christianity that definitely teaches the Word of God in its purity as well as administer the sacraments as God so intends. That's happening right now. Uh, Like I say, I'm helping out in four congregations in Illinois, at this time just sending sermons, videos, and this sort of thing. But soon we will be coming back into congregational settings. The message of Orthodox Christianity, and I don't mean Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox, I mean the true teaching of Christianity is going on now in those churches. However, if the question about whether or not we will ever be the same, there's no doubt that there is a large group of individuals called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and they're kind of fed up with any religion and will not say what religion they are. They may or may not come back into the church. Whether or not the church is going to disappear, the answer is clear. No, it is not. It can be found. And that's one of the reasons the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, to which I belong, is considered a denomination with strong biblical teaching and proper use of the sacraments. Whether or not we grow or shrink, take a look at the history of the world. The church did grow. At times it shrunk. At the time of Martin Luther, boy, just about everybody was believing what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching, that we are saved partially by our works. I would say that with the teaching of the Reformation, the church grew wonderfully in a way that hadn't been occurring during the time of Luther. Last question. Has our country entered into a phase in which institutional orthodox religion is no longer relevant and held in high esteem, as indicated when political leaders co-opt the principles for political gain without universal evangelical pushback? Now, depending what our brother in the Lord means by universal evangelical pushback, I'm assuming he's talking about 
that when these political individuals strive for immoral living, such as gay marriage, abortion, etc., there are many church leaders that do not criticize that kind of a movement, and therefore there's not a pushback. But there are many congregations throughout the world, many Christians, who would push back against that. Just take a look at the problem the United Methodist Church is having in trying to get everybody to agree on gay marriage. It's not happening, and there's probably going to be a big split there. So, if you want me to answer any questions on Open Mic Friday, send me an email at lawandgospel at lawandgospel101.com. And if possible, we sure appreciate any donations to Law and Gospel. Listen carefully to the end of the program as to how you can do that. And we'll be, God willing, back with you on Monday to talk about a Bible verse for the following Sunday. I'm Tom Baker. God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.